may be seated. If you have a Bible, please open it to Exodus chapter 6. If you don't have one with you in the pocket of the pew uh, in front of you, you can find Exodus chapter 6 on page 45 of that Bible. We at Crossway often speak of the sovereignty of God. We're not the only ones who do this, although I think that we do it quite often. And we do it with the sounding of the majority of churches throughout history, speaking of the grand sovereignty of God. We do this for specific reasons. First, we think that it is established in the Bible that God is sovereign over all things. It is found throughout and writ large in Scripture. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and that if he upholds the universe by the power of his word, all things exist through him. They stay in existence because of him. He directs and controls all things. So it is found in Scripture. Secondly, we believe that it glorifies God. Our duty as believers as we come in here is to glorify our Creator and our Savior and our Redeemer, God in Jesus Christ. The fact that God controls all of history, the past and the present and the future, with complete and unmitigated control, makes Him glorious. Isaiah says in chapter 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lastly, we believe that it ought to be a source of great comfort to believers. There is nothing like knowing that the sovereignty of God, the power and might of God is pointed directly at your good and your well-being. As Paul says in Romans, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There is no comfort like knowing that no matter what you face in your day, no matter the travails or the difficulties that come at you, God is working all of those things out for your good. There is much to contemplate in the sovereignty of God. Much to uphold as good. There are also questions that need to be asked, that are often asked when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Specifically, if God is in control of all things, if he moves the world according to the pleasures of his will, if he is able to control not just the planets and the atoms, not just the leaves and the frogs, but he controls the course of human history and and the very decisions of humans within that history. If we are to say something like that, what happens to our free will? Are we not free to make decisions? Are are those decisions already pre-planned by God and Perhaps that doesn't mean that they are truly our decisions. Why, in a word, does he still find fault with creatures, if that is true? And Paul, God love him, brushes that aside by saying, that is not a question for man to ask, but men have asked. We feel free. We think that our decisions are free. But God is also in complete control. Could it be that For those of us who have a a very stern understanding, a firm understanding of the control and the sovereignty of God over all things, could it be that we have it wrong? Yeah, yeah, it, it could be that that is the case. Those who seek to, as in their minds, protect God from the moral actions of his creatures, 
and seek to uphold his justice and his righteousness in judging them would say that, well, his, his sovereignty, in a sense, stops at the freedom of our ability to choose. Whether you believe in God's sovereignty over all things, in minute control and detail, whether you think that that sovereignty stops at the ability of human beings to choose, either way, when we talk about these things, the incidents that we will cover between God and Pharaoh come to the very heart of the matter. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. In our text, we're going to be talking today. We read first, and then we will speak about the complex way in which God's sovereignty is shown. This section from 614 to 713 is kind of shoehorned into the text. We expect for God to go directly into the disruption of Egyptian life with the plagues, and we don't see that, but yet, nevertheless, this is an important section because God is going to show us how his power is going to play out. Let us read our text, beginning in chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, these are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shemai by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uzael, Mishael, Elazaphon, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. This is the word of our God. First thing I would like to speak to you about today is the the sovereignty of God over Moses' lips. His sovereignty over Moses' lips. We left off last time with this odd statement by Moses and his complaint before the Lord after everything goes south. He, he goes in, everything seems good. He's speaking to the people of Israel. They do miracles to prove that they're from God for the people of Israel. Israel bows down and worships. Everything's going golden. He goes in, he talks to Pharaoh. Doesn't go well. Leaders talk to Pharaoh, it doesn't go well. Leaders talk to Moses and Aaron, really doesn't go well. Moses ends by saying, I, I don't know what you want from me, Lord. I think you kind of chose the wrong guy. I, I am of uncircumcised lips. It is, at the very least, a weird and oddly mixed metaphor. What, what exactly does it mean? If you come to something like the Christian Standard Bible, they translate this as, I'm, I'm such a poor speaker. Other translations use unskilled in speech or flattering lips. And it certainly means something like that. It's certainly Moses complaining about his ability to convince Pharaoh and his ability to convince the people of Israel to do the things that he's calling on them to do. Not only did Pharaoh not do what he called him to do, but the people of Israel look at him as though he is an outsider and they, they wonder why it is that he has come to them at all. I think it has something to do with that. But I think it has more to do with, again, the lingering problem that Moses has. Born between two worlds, he belongs to neither. He was born a Hebrew. He was raised an Egyptian. And no one seems to believe that he is truly one of them. This is why I think he uses the phrase uncircumcised. Given what happened on the way back to Egypt and the circumcision of his son when his life was brought under attack, there's very little in my mind that says that he just kind of came up with this particular metaphor for no good reason to say, my lips don't quite work correctly. The point of circumcision was that the people of God would be marked out from all of the other peoples, that they are identified as the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are truly Israelites. When Moses looks at them and says, I have uncircumcised lips, what he is saying is, you know, I'm not... I'm not one of them. They don't look at me as one of them. They don't think of me as one of them. If I can't convince the people of Israel that I am speaking for you, that you are on their behalf because of what I say, if my mouth is so 
faltering, that I can't convince them, what, what chance do I have of speaking to Pharaoh? If they don't listen, how in the world is Pharaoh going to? This is frankly, I think, the point of this quite odd genealogy that comes out of nowhere. It's odd for a number of reasons. It's wholly incomplete. It doesn't finish. There's 12 tribes of Israel. He gets through three, and he's like, now we're good. You guys can spare the rest. And thank God for that. Genealogies are not always the most fun thing to read. But even in that, he starts off with the firstborn, which makes sense. That's where you start genealogies. You start off with the firstborn. Reuben, he goes through one generation, stops, moves on to Simeon. One generation stops. Clearly, not all that interested in Reuben or Simeon, just as he's not interested in anybody that comes after, but Levi, Levi he's interested in. He spends all of his time talking about Levi. The time spent talking about Levi is not for Levi's sake, nor even for Levi's son's sake. It is wholly, as he says at the end, about this Moses and this Aaron. It is to show that they are indeed belonging to the people of Israel, that God has brought them to the forefront because he has chosen them out of the clans of Israel to do this very thing. The point is this. Moses and not a place. Aaron isn't out of place. Moses' mom might have been the one to put him in that little ark and to send him down the river. God kept the crocodiles from him. God kept the hippos from him. God delivered him to the princess of Egypt. God then called him out. It was God's hand in all of it. Just as he spared Noah, so as he spared Moses. Moses was chosen, set aside, picked for this. He is, indeed, the very man who is most perfectly set aside to do this very thing. He thinks he belongs to neither. The truth is he belongs to both. He is the perfect one to go in and talk to his brother, the Pharaoh, with his brother, the Hebrew. Moses might think that because he can't speak well or because he can't utter the things that he wants to the way he wants to, that somehow he is going to fail God. God then reaffirms this. I don't expect for Pharaoh to listen to you. His whole point is, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And God looks at him and like, I, I've said it before, and I will say it again. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. I will make it so that Pharaoh doesn't listen to you. The point is that God is sovereign over everything in Moses' life. Moses isn't an accident. His upbringing isn't an accident. The choice of Moses isn't an accident. Moses' lips are just fine because over them stands the sovereignty of God. It's important for you to remember. God has called you to great things. He's called you to difficult things. Sometimes he's going to put things in your path that are going to seem to overwhelm you. You're going to think, I'm not equipped for this. I'm not ready for this. I can't handle this. Friends, God's sovereignty is there. He has given you everything you need. And what you lack that you need, he will provide for you. His sovereignty stands over you. All things happen for the good. Two, let's talk about God's sovereignty over Aaron's staff. God's sovereignty over this staff of Aaron. Aaron is told to go before Pharaoh, and when they do go, God says, he's going to ask you for a miracle. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to tell Aaron to throw the staff down. You're going to throw it down. Now, the staff... And every English translation that I've found becomes a serpent or a snake. Same thing in every video that I've ever seen about this particular incident. You throw it down, it becomes a serpent or a snake. It's not that those translations are wrong. They're fine. 
But this word often is translated as something completely and utterly different, and, and certainly not utterly different, but more grand. Because what I've always pictured is the staff is like a walking staff, and you throw it down, and it becomes a snake of approximately the same size and shape, which is weird because that snake turns around and eats the other snakes that are there. A number of times when this particular word comes up in Scripture, it is translated as something different. It's translated as dragon or monster or sea monster. Genesis 1.21, Job 7.12 Psalm 74, Psalm 148, Isaiah 27 and 51, Ezekiel 29 and 32. In all of those cases, the exact same word is found, and it's not just a little snake. It's not a cobra. It's not anything that slithers on the ground, but it is a monster. It is a sea serpent. It's a dragon. It's huge. It's big. Some scholars think that this is a crocodile. It wholly and completely changes. It might be better to do it generally and just say something like reptile. But you need to remember, it's not something that simply slithers, but it is quite clearly something that destroys. That makes this passage terribly interesting. Something we're going to turn back to is this idea of the magicians doing the very thing that Moses was told to do. The dark arts are not bad for you because they're false. They're bad for you because they're bad. The magicians do the very thing that Aaron does even though Aaron's staff monster turns around and eats that. The truly interesting thing is that God chose for the staff to become a monster or to become a sea dragon or to become something that is grotesque and large and scary. It is an image that God will bring up again and deliver against a specific people. Those two passages from Ezekiel read this way. Ezekiel 29.3 Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is mine own. I made it for myself. In Ezekiel 32, God says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. You might ask, why, why does that become the image of Pharaoh? And if that's the image of Pharaoh, then why have the staff turn into that? Why have the staff turn into a dragon or some sort of crocodilish creature? Why not have it turn into something that better represents Israel? Right? We've got the tribe of Judah, will be represented by a lion. That would be a great thing for it to turn into, right? Or if you really love irony, maybe have it turn into a lamb. Because the lamb eating the other snakes, oh man, even the worst preachers could find Christ in that, right? So, so that would be a tremendous thing for it to turn. What beautiful symbolism that would be, but why have it turn into this thing that is then going to be identified with Egypt in the first place? I think God knew that it was going to be interpreted as Egypt, and I think that he did it for a purpose, from nothing, almost, from a stick. God is able to bring forth this dragon, and with a mere mortal reaching out and grabbing its tail, he can make it turn back into a staff. Pharaoh wouldn't have understood the symbol. We ought to. God brings the serpent up. 
he takes the serpent out. He raises Egypt to its power, and he can diminish it again in the blink of an eye. Through the hand of a man, he can bring it to an end. Aaron's staff shows to us the very thing that we are to understand about the sovereignty of God. It is over all nations. No nation is so powerful that God cannot take them out because no nation has ever come into existence that he has not brought up. He brings them up, he takes them out, he calls them into existence, and he tells a man to simply stand before them and they will crumble and fall. God is sovereign over Aaron's staff. Thirdly, and most importantly, we need to talk about God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's will. I save this bit for last primarily because it's the most difficult part and it's going to take us the longest to go through. We are pretty much fine with God smiting people in the Old Testament, especially ugly, nasty people. He can smite all day long and we kind of praise it. But the minute that he touches our free will or even the evil people's free will, we kind of crunchy on the inside. It seems weird. We don't want him. We don't, the idea that he is holding people responsible, that he is making do the things that he wants them to do. It's like, you're going to sin. I'm going to make you do it. And then I'm going to hold you responsible. Kind of turns our stomachs and it kind of should. So what are we talking about when we say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? It is one of the more difficult things in all of scripture. And I want to lower your expectations right away. We're not going to solve that problem this morning. I simply want to give you a couple of things to think about, about how God does what he does in the book of Exodus. First, a couple of notes. What we're going to talk about, there are basically three ways that these constructions are made, whether Pharaoh hardens his own heart, so Pharaoh is the one acting. It can be passive, so that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but we don't actually know what or who is doing the hardening. Most people take that to be God. I don't anymore because the third construction is God, frankly, flat out hardening Pharaoh's heart. So God sometimes is the direct object or the direct subject of the object of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Secondly, we should also note that heart here is not just the seat of the emotions. It's typically how Americans think this through because we've divided the inner life of man kind of into a couple of different parts. We've got the heart for the emotions, the brain for thinking, or the mind for thinking. We've got the will for decision-making and stuff like that. The, you know, all of those kind of mix in together. No decision is made without feelings, without head. And, and the Hebrews just kind of collapsed all of it down into this idea of heart. So sometimes when we're talking about heart, we're probably best to talk about the will of Pharaoh, which is why I translated this point or titled this point, God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's will. It's not just his heart, but his whole decision-making process. If you are to go through this passage from Exodus 4 to Exodus 14, there are three different words that the English, almost every English translation, translates with one word, hardened or hard. There are three separate Hebrew words that go into that. I'm going to talk about each of them because I think each is important. The first one is the one most likely to be translated as hard. This only appears twice in these chapters. Here in 7.3, where God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. It also occurs in 13.15, where the ESV says that Pharaoh's stubbornness kept us from being released. And the idea is his hardness, his, his unrelenting nature kept us from being released. Throughout 
the passages that we deal with in Egypt and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, this word is only used those two times. It's quite clearly, I think, a summary term to understand, to help us understand what's happening in general to Pharaoh with the other two terms that are going to be used. Oddly enough, this word does come up in a number of other places, specifically later in the book of Exodus, where it is applied to the necks of the people of Israel. They are a stiff-necked people. They are hard in their neck. The idea is that they become like the calf that they have worshipped. That is the first time that stiff-necked is applied to them after they make the golden calf. The idea is if that calf is going to walk straight, if that, that bull is going to go straight, you can push on its head all you want it to, to turn it to the left or turn it to the right, but it's stiff-necked. It won't turn. It's going in its direction, and it cannot be bent aside. For the people of Israel, that means that as God tries to move them toward faithfulness, they continually refuse to relent. They only want to go in their direction. They do not want to move in God's, and that's precisely what is going on with Pharaoh as well. What both Pharaoh and God do in these passages is to stiffen Pharaoh's resolve. God states that he wants Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh is so hardened in his will, he will not move to the left or to the right. In the end, his neck is stiff. He will not be bent. The second word, the most important word in this thing, is probably best translated as strengthened, that Pharaoh strengthened his will. God strengthened the will of Pharaoh. It's the kind of idea that we know very well. Anytime you've seen a child stand at the edge of a pool, clearly wanting to jump into the pool, but not wanting to jump into the pool because they're afraid it's going to be cold. So they stand there, and they're, they're kind of inching back and forth, and they, they sometimes make the little move to jump in, and then they hold back, and their siblings are in the pool, and they will either encourage or they'll make fun of sibling who is on the side saying, listen, it's not that cold, jump in or I know you won't jump in, you're a huge wuss. They'll, they'll say that kind of, and either, in each case, what they're doing is strengthening the will of the other child, right? By encouragement or by spite, when that child who's standing on the edge jumps in, their will has been strengthened. There's something that they wanted to do and something that kept them from doing it. And the strengthening of their will means that they can overcome the thing that was holding them back. This is exactly what happens every time we meet this word in Exodus. God and Pharaoh strengthen Pharaoh's resolve. God brings a plague. The plague is hard, it is difficult, and Pharaoh's will starts to crumble. He doesn't like the plague, the people of God, keeping the people of Israel here, not worth it. I don't want my people to go through this anymore. I don't want to go through this anymore. At the end of it, he says, go. And what does God do? God always relents the plague. When God takes away the plague, what happens? Pharaoh's will is strengthened. The thing that he always wanted to do at the beginning, that his dad wanted to do before him, keep the people of Israel here. Do not let them leave. His will is softened because of the difficulties of the plagues. God then relinquishes the plagues and his strength returns. He hardens his heart. He strengthens his resolve. And he says, I will not let the people go. The pattern throughout Exodus plays out quite beautifully. Early on in the passage, it's Pharaoh himself or a passive by which Pharaoh says either he is hardening his heart, he's stiffening his resolve. He's saying, no, I'm going to stand by what I said. I'm not going to let the people go. Or the events themselves lend themselves to that. But by the end of the passage, 
It is God doing all of the hardening. This word occurs 11 times in chapters 4 through 14, with five of the last six explicitly of God. God is the one doing the hardening. It seems like it's all human activity at the beginning, but by the end there is no doubt that God is the one who is hardening, stiffening, strengthening the will of Pharaoh. And it seems as though he does it always by being merciful to him. He relinquishes. God knows that by pulling back the plagues, he could have easily just kept the frogs. He could have easily kept the hail coming. And Pharaoh would have driven the people out, but God pulls back so that Pharaoh will stiffen his heart. Pharaoh will harden his heart. He will make his resolve all the more firm so that God can bring another and another and another. Now, the question then becomes, if God is interacting with Pharaoh's will in this way, is he only manipulating the situation and the context so that Pharaoh's decision is strengthened? Or is he actually doing something internal to Pharaoh as well? This is really the question. Is, if we picture this as a, a rat running through a maze, is God simply getting the rat to where he wants it to go by blocking off the false turns? So the rat wants to go to the right and God blocks it off so he'll go to the left so he can get to the end of the maze a little bit quicker. Or is God somehow determining and telling the rat, making the rat change directions, working in him internally? At the very least, it's clear that God is using outside means and outside pressures to get the response out of Pharaoh that he wants. This is the whole picture of him here strengthening the will of Pharaoh. But whether or not God directly manipulates Pharaoh or whether or not God is working internally in Pharaoh, well, we have a third word for that. The last word we have already seen as well. And actually, it comes up in a passage that you wouldn't have thought about. It's Moses' complaint again about his mouth, which is probably why that complaint comes up again, to bring that link together. Moses, when he first complains about his mouth, the ESV translates that as, I am slow in speech and slow of tongue. But what it really says is a, a metaphor that you and I don't ever use. He says, I'm heavy in mouth and tongue. This idea of heaviness doesn't work well as a metaphor for us that way. We don't ever speak that way. But Scripture, especially the Hebrew Old Testament, oftentimes uses the idea of heaviness when it comes to sensory things to show that they're not working well. So in Genesis 48.10, the eyes of Israel were dim with age. That is, the eyes of Israel were heavy with age. In Isaiah 59, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear heavy or dull that it cannot hear. The word used here is obviously also used for heavy things. It's used for the burdens, normal metaphors that we use the word heavy for, the burdens that are placed on the Israelites. They are heavy. The use of Pharaoh's heart being heavy is seven times from 4 to chapter 14, and it occurs in the next verse that we have in verse 14. Interestingly, in verse 13, we have the word strengthened being used. So if we were to put those two verses together, 7.13 and 7.14, we might want to say this. Still Pharaoh's, heart, excuse me, still Pharaoh's will was strengthened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's will is dull, and he refuses to let the people go. The idea is that his heart or his will was malfunctioning 
he wasn't thinking right. He was, he was not clicking on all eight cylinders. He was working on maybe three and a half here, is what God is saying. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's making bad decisions. He's not letting the people go. At the time, you might not think that this adds much to the discussion. Obviously, his will is not working well, but I think that that's the point. The point also is that the times when this comes up the most, that his, his will is heavy, is during the time of the plagues. And quite often, the plagues themselves are described with that very word. They're described as heavy. In 8.20, the flies are heavy upon the land. In 9.3, the plague on the livestock is heavy. And in 9, 18, and 24, the hail falls heavy. In 10, 14, the locusts are heavy. Given that both that same word occurs in all of the same situation, I don't think that we ought to look over it. God makes the plagues heavy. They're not light. They're not easy. And as we've seen, the heavier they are, the more likely Pharaoh is to say, get my people out of here. So God does something else. He makes his heart just as heavy as the plagues. This idea of heaviness is quite clearly connected to the plagues. God is making Pharaoh's heart dull. He's making his intellect and his will dull. He is doing it because otherwise he'd be releasing the people before God finished what he wanted to do. And by the way, this is exactly how the text reads. Read through the text. Listen to the plagues coming and coming and coming and coming and tell me that at some point in time you don't look at Pharaoh and say, you are the stupidest man alive. It's never going to end, man. Right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, you ain't going to fool me again. Right? And the words of our immortal president. Not this one, one before. So, except I said that much better than he did. If you ever get that clip, it's fantastic. So, anyway... You, you read through the text and you are just blown away by the foolishness of Pharaoh. This is not a man, by the way, who seems to make bad decisions. Now, they are wretched and evil decisions. But when he decides, listen, the people are going to believe these lying words that Moses is telling them. They're going to believe and they're going to leave. I'm going to make their labor incredibly hard. And in doing so, they won't believe the deceptive words. And you know what comes to pass? Exactly that. It might be wretched and insidious, but it's shrewd. He knows precisely what he's doing. And then all of a sudden you get into the plagues, and this guy becomes an idiot. It'll be different this time. Livestock's all dead. Doesn't matter. Let's press on, right? And you're like, just let the people go, dude. Just let them go. It's really simple. Just let them go. What God is doing is making him unable to make wise decisions. And we read this throughout Scripture. God makes people simple. God makes people wise. Solomon asks him for wisdom, and God makes him wise. He drives Nebuchadnezzar to the point of craziness. He makes the strong weak and the weak strong. He easily moves them from one to the next. This is the very thing that he spoke to Moses Moses says, my tongue is heavy. And he says, don't you know who made the tongue? Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I can fix heaviness, and I can bring it on. In the end, Pharaoh isn't kept from doing what he desires. His heart's longing from the first to the last was to keep Israelite 
all of the Israelites in town. God acts both to show his power and to make sure that Pharaoh's will is still bent to that end. When his will is softened, God relinquishes to bring strength to Pharaoh's resolve. When common sense and any, any ounce of wisdom would say to give up, God dulls him to such wisdom. But in no case is Pharaoh ever simply a puppet of God. Or does God make Pharaoh do anything that he doesn't already want to do? Does God harden Pharaoh? Absolutely. But Pharaoh, in a very real sense, has asked him to do it. God is fully sovereign, and Pharaoh is fully responsible. God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that we affirm because we like the sound of it. Although, I'll be honest with you, I love the sound of it. That's not why. It's not because it provides a sense of completion to some sort of system that we want to have work, although it does. We preach and believe in the sovereignty of God because it is just writ large throughout all of Scripture. And what's more, we believe that it is good for us in all ways. Listen, God is making that as obvious as he can to this people. And imagine if we read through the rest of Exodus, and even if you were to continue into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, if the people themselves had believed truly in the sovereign rule and reign of God, how much trouble they would have avoided. It would have stopped their grumbling. It would have put an end to their frivolous idolatry. It would have given them assurance of God's power over their enemies and over all obstacles that stood in their way. It would have calmed all their fears of dying in the wilderness where God was keeping them alive by the power of his word. This power is no less present with us than it was with them. God's sovereignty hasn't abated. It hasn't waxed and then waned. It is present even among us. We preach the end of slavery to people who are enslaved. We preach life to dead people. We can't make them alive. I, dead people don't say, you know what, this stinks. I would rather be alive, right? Of course you would, but you don't have that choice. It's not within your will. You're dead. Dead people do dead things. They lay there dead. They don't make themselves alive. But the sovereign spirit of God breathes life into those bones. It takes the dead and it makes them alive again. It rebirths them. That is a miracle of God and it is by his sovereign hand that such becomes true. Not only is the sovereignty of God present in our ability to come to the Lord, even the very act of the Lord in bringing the very thing that we needed so that we could come alive again, is no less a sign of the sovereignty of God. Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross because wicked men wanted him to go to the cross. And he says before he goes, you've got to be understanding of a couple things here. No one takes my life. I, by my own free will, by the power of God in me, lay it down, and I will take it up again. God acts through the hard hearts of men, 
their rock-hard conviction towards sin, their steadfast refusal to repent as the very thing by which God will bring salvation to his people, both in Egypt and in the cross. It doesn't matter whether it's Pharaoh and his minions, whether it's the Pharisees and Pilate. God works out all things, even the evil intent of the enemies of our brothers and sisters, of his own people. Those enemies and all of their evil schemes work out for the good for God's people. Jesus is sovereign over all things. Even when he's forced to his death, he goes willingly because he has a life to lay down. Jesus is sovereign over all things. Let this bring you salvation by faith. Let it bring you comfort in temptation. Let it bring you joy in trials. Let it bring you perseverance in difficulty and certainly worship in truth. For he is sovereign over all things. Let us pray. Father, we do admit that your glory and power are seen perfectly in your sovereign rule over the whole of creation. Yet even though we know this, we have seen you display such power on numerous occasions, although we affirm it with our lips, our actions do at times deny it sinfully. We grumble and complain. We worry and obsess. We plan pridefully without consultation of your spirit. Forgive us for these things. Give us a true and abiding faith in your good hand over all things, not a spurious faith that affirms but does not live out, but a true and trusting faith that walks by faith and not by our sight. We ask this to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the power of the sovereign God has overcome all of our evil and the evil one to give us freedom and love forevermore. Amen. If you would stand Rise and sing with us the song of response, Come, Behold the Wondrous Mystery. <laughs>